it's awesome to be with you. And um, I actually have a number of prophecies, but I don't want to prophesy. I'm not really a prophet. But um, yeah, man, I think the Lord is doing something very special. And uh, for many of you, uh, it's a season of preparing for what's to come. But I'm not going to be talking about that. I felt the Lord speak to me about, um, at the beginning of this year, as I was trying to prepare for, Lord, you know, where are you taking us this year? What do you want to do in us as a church? And the Lord spoke a number of things, but one of the things He spoke to me was that uh, we have become a little bit too tame, which seems a little bit strange if you're visiting, if you think this is tame. But I felt that, um, I felt the Lord say to me that we've become a little bit tame, a little bit kind of like everything is kind of in the box. And I felt the Lord say that he wanted to break the box and break out this year. And so the title of this preach is, This is That. This is That. And it'll make sense to you now as we dig into the scriptures uh, as to what I'm trying to say, what I think the Lord is trying to say. But in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 16, I think you've got that on your notes. Yeah. So what happened here is... Um, it's a day of Pentecost. It's a Jewish festival. We'll look at it in a bit of detail just now. And the Holy Spirit, for the first time in a powerful way in the history of the planet, is poured out in, in a fresh way, a new way, upon the early Christians, the early disciples. There's 120 of them. Uh, Jesus has been crucified, and he's been resurrected. They've seen him. And now they're waiting in Jerusalem, and there's this Jewish festival called Shavuot. And in the middle of this festival, the Holy Spirit's poured out. And there's chaos and pandemonium, and we'll look at that just now. Everyone's a little bit not sure what's going on. And, and Peter gets up and he says, if you put it up for me, he says this as he begins to explain what's happening. But this is that. But this that you're experiencing, this that we're seeing, this that's happening in Jerusalem today is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And one of the things that Peter was doing was cementing and rooting the move of God in the Word of God. He was showing that the, the Christians and the, and the Jews that this thing that God was doing was God because they were wondering, is this God or is this the devil? And, you know, what is this? Um, and um, I feel like when the Lord moves, we're going to look at this in a bit of detail, it is very strange normally. It doesn't normally fit the paradigms that we're comfortable with or that we know. And very often you find that there's turmoil and a lot of pastoral work whenever the Lord starts to move in a fresh way. And I, I feel like the Lord's saying to me, I'm about to move in a fresh way. You better prepare the people. Um, and Jesus had prepared the disciples before this happened because we know that he had already said to them that he was going to pour out the Holy Spirit in a powerful, fresh way. He had breathed on them to receive the Holy Spirit. But then the fulfillment of that came a bit later. But the 12 were ready for what was to come. And so they knew this is God. Everyone else is like, what on earth is going on? And so they were able to cement what God was saying. And I feel like I want to prepare you. And I'm not going to suggest how God's going to do what's going to do. I just have a sense that he's going to do something a little bit different. And so for whatever that is, remember this preach. When it happens, however it happens, remember the things that you learned today. Um, so in the Bible, 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, we, we read a warning about the end times church. And it speaks about that there will be a form of godliness but a denial of its power. And, and we're told to have nothing to do with that kind of Christianity. Do you know that the charismatic church that I was born again into in 19, about 1990, there was a sense of a hand of God and the move of God across the church. And there were real senses of the power of the new birth, the power of uh, the gospel, the power of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But in many parts of the charismatic church, you will not see the charisma, the life of God. The char charismatic comes from the root charisma, which really is the life or the, the, the move of God. It's become more charisma around personality that has come around the charisma or the life of the Holy Spirit. And so many churches today, even in this city, would, you, you would see really brilliant worship. You'd see a brilliant preach. You'd see a lot of stuff that is a form of religion, a form of the gospel. But you would see a denial of the power of God. And, and we warned about that. We warned that man, men will start to put their grubby fingers on every part of the church and coordinate and orchestrate things so that you'll end up with these, a sea of people. Many will sound that day, Lord, Lord. But actually, they've lost the power. They've lost the presence. They've lost the manifest glory of God. 
And we warned about that. We warned to have nothing to do with that. And so as a church, we are hungry and passionate to follow God wherever He goes and to allow God to be God. And we don't often even know really where or what's going to happen uh, because we're trying to hang on to the hang of His garment as He moves. Um, and, and so, but you do realize that in many churches today, you won't even see prophecy. Prophecies now become the teaching of the word. And I'm like, no, the teaching of the word and prophecy is a very different thing. It's a very different thing. The one is taken from the word and it's teaching. The other is a revelation from God. And, and so when the Lord moves, and I think we are in a bit of a move of God already, there is something of the amount of churches being planted, people getting saved, just the growth that we're in at the moment is a move of God. But it feels like there's a, a fresh wave of power of presence that God wants to bring. And so that's going to mean it might, we might have some times, I, I don't actually know what that means. I just know, Lord, don't, I don't want to put you in marks. I don't want to put you in the box. I don't want to predict or say, well, I, I know how God's moved with me in the past or I've seen. I just know that, Lord, you're about to do something and we need to be ready for it. Open our hearts for that. And so uh, just to give you a bit of background as well to times when God moves. I love the prophet Isaiah. He's one of my favorite prophets. He was uh, one of the prophets of Judah that was um, uh, actually before... The background to this, to this prophecy is Israel or Judah, is, um, which are the people of God in the Old Testament, were kind of going through a ritualistic routine. They had their, you know, the temple, they would go and they would offer sacrifices. But, but Judah, who was supposed to be these people who loved God, had actually lost something of that love for God. Compromise had settled into their faith. They were a little bit like the world and a little bit like a special people. And they weren't what they should be. And so Isaiah, who's this prophet, this man who God speaks to in a, in a revelatory way, gets this, the whole book is just a book of prophecy. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And he sees the future. God shows him a vision of what he's about to do. And, and so much of the book is about terrible things that are about to happen. Because Isaiah sees that God wants to revive his people. But to revive them, he's actually going to raise up a foreign empire. God is going to raise up Babylon to actually come and overthrow his very own people, to take them into captivity for a period of time, and they're going to, a whole generation will be in captivity. But then he prophesies and sees beyond the captivity to God coming to heal and to restore and to bring back his people. And in one of the prophecies about that aspect, he says this in Isaiah 49, 8 to 12. We'll read it together. And I want us to just see some things. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And just, just stop, pause there quickly. God has times. There's times where God does certain things because he's God. And there is a time of the Lord's judgment that Israel or Judah is about to go into. But then there is a time of the Lord's favor. And you know, it's a funny thing. The time of the Lord's favor is something that seems to be orchestrated purely by God. It's like God decides, I'm going to do this. I don't know that this was birthed in prayer or that you know, the saints were crying out for revival. It was just the time that God said, I'm going to do something. And there are times and seasons that God says, I'm going to do something. And when God does those things, we need to uh, be uh, prepared and ready. So he says, in the time of my favor, I'll answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. And so before that, Israel has been overwhelmed and overrun, and they can't win any battles. Everything's going wrong. But in the day that God moves, suddenly victory is there. And I'll make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore, and listen to this, to restore the land. God is going to bring restoration, to reassign desolate inheritances. There are inheritances that have been lost in the kingdom that God is going to give back, reassign, and not just give, he might even reassign in that you had this, but you were unfaithful. I'm giving this to somebody else. It's a time of God moving. To, to say to the captives, come out. So people are going to be bound and there'll be a freedom that's breaking out. And to those in darkness, be free. They'll be, they will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. In other words, hills that were once barren, that had no life, there was no water. Suddenly, it's just going to be like there's overflow and there's beautiful, beautiful victory. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. 
He who has compassion on them will guard them and lead them beside springs of water. And I want to dig into that springs of water just now. But there is a sense that suddenly this barren land that's had no water, the fields are parched and dry. Suddenly there will be springs welling up. And, and this is obviously not, or it is a physical thing, but it's also not just a physical thing. There is a sense of the spring of life, the spring of living water, the spring of the Holy Spirit will well up. And there'll be this move of God. I'll turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, from the west, some from the region of Aswan. So these springs of water will, will rise up. Whenever the Lord moves and restores and revives, there is, it's like the normal is not normal anymore. What was is no longer. Now there's something that's entirely new and fresh. And just when I was looking at that springs, these springs that are suddenly well up and the ground will be fertile and well watered, I was thinking of Ezekiel. Ezekiel would come a little bit after Isaiah. Isaiah would speak before Israel going into captivity. And then Isaiah would eventually, actually, actually to be honest, uh, one of the kings of Judah had him cut in half with a wood saw because he didn't like his message. And so Isaiah is eventually killed by God's own people. And then um, Israel gets taken into captivity. And from captivity, one of the young men, a man called uh, Ezekiel, sorry, uh, yeah, Ezekiel, is taken into captivity. And he ends up uh, sitting by the river of Kabar, we read this, it's, it's five years into the captivity, and he's a young man who obviously thinks everything is lost. And sitting in captivity by a river, probably with no hope, the barren wasteland, there's no, he sees, heaven opens to him, and he sees this vision. And the whole book is this book of what Ezekiel starts to see from captivity in this place of barrenness, in this place, he sees the river break open and he starts to write about it. And he starts off and he says, the river will start. It'll flow from the temple. Now the temple's destroyed when he writes it. But he says, God, somehow he sees the temple in Jerusalem and he sees this water pouring out from under the door of the temple running down towards the east. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem to where the day of Pentecost happened, Pentecost literally was poured out on the east side of the temple. It was like what he saw happen hundreds of years later as God began to pour out his spirit in a new way. And he writes about this river that will suddenly begin to well up from the throne and begin to pour out. And it says, it, it starts off, it'll be knee deep. And then it'll become waist deep. And then it'll become, you know, shoulder deep. And then it'll become too deep for anyone to walk in. And this river will run down to the lowest, most arid place. And there, what's dead, the salt, the dead sea, he says, will become filled with life. And everything that's been dead will start to suddenly come alive. And he sees, really, he sees a revival. It starts on the day of Pentecost as, as the river of God is broken out and, and uh, it starts. But the thing I want you to see is this. If Pentecost was the river knee deep, and he later says this, in verse 5 of, uh, where is it now? 47 verse 5. But now it was a river that I could not cross. Because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. A river that no one could cross. And God asked him, son of man, do you see this? This river that becomes so deep that no one can cross. It, it's beyond human strength. It's beyond human ability. It's beyond human endurance. Up, you know, you can stand in knee deep water. It's refreshing. Yesterday in the heat, it would have been nice. But, but, and the waste of water is awesome, but there comes a point where the river of God becomes so powerful that you can no longer stand in it. And where you can't even cross it. You can't fathom it. You can't. It's just bigger than you are. And you're in it. And you're swept along with the river. Wherever the river goes, you go. But wherever the river goes, Ezekiel sees there's life. Trees pop up by the side. Places that have been dead where no fish could live. Suddenly there's fish and there's life because the river of God has started to move. And so when the Lord moves, invariably life follows the river. And if the Lord is about to do something fresh, it will have something to do with the river of God. Um, and maybe just to tell you a little bit of a background, and again, it, it's what God did then, he, he probably will do differently in, in the future. But Josh Jen, I've often said, was planted out of a, a river, actually. I was, a, I was actually, a, as a young man, I was born again, and... Um, I'm going to tell you a part of my story. I didn't plan to. But as a young man, I got saved out of drugs, out of the occult. And I had incredible encounters with the Lord. Uh, 
I remember, I mean, I actually saw him. He appeared in one of our meetings. I think you might even have been in that meeting that I saw him. And, um, and um, as, as, young, as young believers, and uh, there was such a sense of the power and the presence of God. I remember heaven opened to me at one point. I saw in the spirit for a period of about six months. Uh, I was used powerfully with Satanists. And it was just such an incredible, heady time of the presence of God. And then the Lord decided to take me into a desert. And uh, for a period of about two years, I went into this desert. I didn't hear the Lord's voice. The Lord was living in China, and I was living in somewhere in Africa. It was just one of those, Lord, where are you? What happened? You know, did I sin? What happened? And the Lord was working something in me in that time. Um, and, and then it all, be, all started to turn when uh, we had a bit of a move of God start breaking out in the church that I was in. But initially when the river broke out in our church, we were actually Jeff Kidwell. Many of you know Jeff Kidwell is now on staff with us. Jeff Kidwell, we actually had a church camp at Jeffreys Bay, and I was in a church in PE. And we went out, and um, the Holy Spirit broke out in one of those meetings like in a way that was very, very powerful. If I say very powerful, people were no longer able to stand. People were falling on the floor. They were crying. They were laughing. And I was still in the desert. I was, the river hadn't touched me yet. And I remember after two years of crying out to God for his presence, to hear his voice, desperately thirsty, desperately hungry for the Lord. And, and just, God, please, I'm seeing the river moving all around me. Please, would you just do something in me? Would you touch me? And, and the Lord... I mean, it was crazy. At one point, I remember I was the last man standing in the room. Even Jeff was flopping around somewhere. And, the, and there was no one was sitting in their chair. No one, was, no one was in their right mind except me. And I was standing there feeling like I was dying, feeling like I was so parched, so thirsty spiritually, just crying out of my heart, God, please, I've had two years, would you touch me? And at one point, everyone who was really acting very drunk and crazy saw that there was somebody that wasn't like them and wanted me to join the party. So they, they started to crawl over to me from across the room. And I was standing desperately thirsty. And they reached out and people were hanging on me and get him, Lord. And I was like, yes, Lord, get me, please. And, and, and the Lord didn't get me. The Lord did, did nothing in me. And, and there was just this, this thirstiness. And, and it got worse then. It felt like a little bit worse. Why are they getting it? And I, Lord, I'm not even sensing anything in this. It's like I'm bulletproof. Like I'm not sensing your presence. Even I'm actually getting a bit angry with your presence right now because it's not touching me. I was in Jeffrey's Bay and I'm a surfer. And so I decided, well, blow this. If God doesn't want to touch me. I was younger than I am now, obviously, but less mature. Blow this. I'm going surfing. So I left the meeting and I went surfing. I had good waves. Felt a bit better about myself. Came back, and funny enough, Dion and Kim Delport, who planted the church in Mossel Bay, were elders in that church. And I remember them waiting at the entrance to where uh, we would come back. And at, at the, we were at a caravan park, we were at a park. They were waiting at the entrance of the park for me. So I, as I saw them, I got a little bit scared because here are elders, an elder and his wuss prophetic wife, <laughs> you know, waiting for me. And um, I remember Kim just saying, where did you go? What, did you, what were you doing? And I was like, Meh. I felt like I was at the headmaster's office. And grow up was the word that they said to me. Grow up. You're called to serve the Lord. Grow up. Everything with my tail between my legs. And that weekend, I still got nothing of the presence of the Lord. But I was there. I remained faithful. We came home and um, I went up on the hill. At our, we stayed in a little house in Port Elizabeth. It was like a big Wendy house, basically. A wooden Wendy house, but quite a big one. And I went up the one day to pray, and we had some friends who were just coming to our house for dinner that night. And I went up on the hill, and I was just seeking the Lord, just talking to Him. And as I was talking to Him, I had a vision, an open vision. And I saw, I could see down the valley where the little house was, and I saw what looked like a whirlwind, but it was light. It wasn't wind. I saw a whirlwind appear, and, and from heaven, spinning, 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 and go down, like a tail that goes down in a whirlwind, onto our house. And I got excited. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that meant something. Like, I'm seeing something here. And I, I ran down the hill, and some of the guys had got there early. And I think Julie was in the kitchen helping MC cook, and Milani was somewhere in the house. And I ran into the house, and I remember saying, guys, guys, come here. You've got to hear this. And they ran into the room. And as I tried to tell them, I was about to tell them what I had seen. And I felt like I could hit by a truck. It's the best I can say. I was just excited about what I'd seen, and, and I felt this, the presence of God and the power of God hit me. For the first time in two years, this, the power of God hit me and overwhelmed me. I literally got thrown backwards, landed on the ground, and I started, the best I can say, have you ever seen a woman in childbirth? She's kind of lying there going, ah! 
And I was, it was like I was a woman in childhood. I, I don't know what's happening. I'm just conscious of the presence of God, and I feel like I'm, something's coming out, but like I'm giving birth. And I'm like, ah! And they're like, and, the, and, and as I went down, they all just also, the presence of God hit them, and they went down, and well, it was just pandemonium in our house. And that continued and continued, and there were stories of people began to gather in my home and come from, because there was something of God. People began to get saved, and... Um, I wasn't leading a home group. I wasn't an elder. I was just a member of the church. But the Lord did something in my home there. And I often say I think Josh Jen was born, something was being born in the spirit there. That now is a movement that spans the globe in terms of 412 and churches all over the world. But the Lord moved in a powerful way upon us. And whenever the Lord does this, uh, it's a bit, a little bit weird, and, and in Acts 2, verse 12 to 13, we see the response that happened on the day of Pentecost, because you must understand these Jews have been kind of serving God for many years, they've been going every year on more than one occasion to Jerusalem, to the temple, this is what they would have done, uh, they were devout, Israel was actually pretty devoted at this point, um, you know, people were, were loving God and trying to serve God and honor God as Jews, and uh, the Holy Spirit pours out on the day of Pentecost, and uh, how it happens, for those of you that don't know the quick background, uh, they, uh, Solomon's colonnade is a large part of the Jewish temple. There's a part of that uh, called the upper room, and they're in the temple, and the Holy Spirit is poured out. And so you've got these, you've probably got about, Solomon's colonnade could take over 100,000 people. You've probably got about, probably nearly that number, packed with Jews. And the Christians have come, and they also are part of the festival. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. They're at the temple because on, the, on Shavuot, you would be at the temple at 9 o'clock in the morning. And so they're at the temple, at the part of the temple called the upper room, and, and the Holy Spirit suddenly comes upon a group. You've got to imagine 100,000 people. They're all there to offer things to God, and suddenly tongues of fire appear and come down and settle on this little pocket of 120 of them. And this 120 start to suddenly start speaking strange languages, and they're falling around, and they're acting, they seem to be drunk, and the Jews are, this is what the Jews are, amazed and perplexed. The Jews asked one another, what does this mean? Some over made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. This response is a very standard response to a move of God. Whenever God does something, there are three groups of people or three responses, uh, and, and, and they all three are encapsulated in one little portion of Scripture here. And so I want us to see this, because when God moves, however God moves, you're going to find you're going to be in one of these groups, or your friends will be in one of these groups. And we have to help people understand when the Lord moves that this is that. This is that. This is, this is what the Bible says happens when God moves. And we'll look at that in a bit of detail as we dig into Scripture and see examples of when the Lord has moved historically through the Bible, in the Bible. And so firstly, just to look at that, I want to break it down. Um, this is the background I've mentioned. It's a, week, it's a feast of weeks or Shavuot. The Jews are celebrating the day that Moses got the law. And they're celebrating that 50 days before this, they have planted crops and it's now the Feast of Weeks, which means basically the Jews have come together and the first of their crops have come out of the ground. And they are offering this to God from across the nation as, the first, as, as really the, the, the harvest, the, the first of their harvest. They say, God, this is yours. And so it's a very holy time in the Jewish calendar. And it's in that moment that the Holy Spirit falls. And remember, the, the, that little group of 120 looked like they were drunk. Now, I have to ask you this. What does, if you had to see a bunch of people... What would make you think that they were drunk? How would they be acting? Remember that the language here is drunk. So, so and, and, and again, Peter actually gets up and says, we're not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. We're Jews at a holy festival. We're not going to be drinking at nine in the morning. This is that. So, but they were seeming to be drunk from everyone looking at them from the outside. And, and, and I, I mean, I've seen drunk people. I've been drunk before, before I came to Jesus. When a bunch of people are drunk, it's like, it's, it's not like they're standing there going, hallelujah. They are acting very strange. They're all trying to speak. And, and in trying to speak, they're not speaking 
uh, Aramaic, which is probably the language, or Greek, which is probably the language that they would have been speaking. They actually are speaking in languages that they don't even understand. All together at the same time. It's like looking at your wife and saying, and she goes, and you don't know what you're saying. That's most of the time the way it is with husbands and wives anyway. But, <laughs> but there is a sense that this is not normal. This is not normal. Now, what they don't realize is that there are Jews who have come to this holy time from across the world. And as they're speaking with these strange languages, they, those people who do speak those languages are hearing the mysteries of the gospel in their own language. But it's a bit weird and a bit chaotic. And so let's look at this. What does this mean? Whenever God moves, there's this question, what is this? What is this for? What is this about? What does this mean? And then the Bible says they were perplexed. And the word uh, in the Greek is diaporon. And it, it's quite a negative word, actually. The, the connotation, that the, you know, words have a good and a bad kind of vibe about them. Like amazed is a good word. Perplexed is not such a good thing. Perplexed speaks of this. Um, this makes no sense. It makes no sense. In Luke 24, 4, do you remember when Jesus' body is missing when they go to the tomb? And, 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 and they go to the tomb and his body's not there. And they don't know where's his body, what's going on, why is his body not here. The Bible uses this language of they're perplexed. I don't understand. Did someone steal his body? What's going on? And so there's a move. Whenever the Lord moves, there are people that are going, I don't understand what this is. I don't know if I'm comfortable with this thing. It's, it's not like I'm going, yes, this is that. They're going, I'm a little bit uncomfortable. Did, did someone steal his body? What is going on? And there's this, it makes no sense to me. It seems wrong. And the leaning here is, it seems wrong to me. And so when God moves, there'll always be some people in our, and maybe we, we might have a response, this doesn't, I don't understand this, I'm, I'm confused. And then you're going to think of scriptures, God is not a God of confusion. Or, and it feels wrong, I'm uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable. There's a second group of people, and they're amazed. The word is existemi, very positive. In Luke 24, just after verse 22, so they first have this question, I don't know what's going on, where's Jesus' body? Then the angel of the Lord tells the woman, hey, why are you looking for him here? Didn't he tell you to be raised? And the woman run back to the apostles and tell them that they've seen an angel. And that the angel has told them that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And the, the, their language now goes from, they were perplexed, I don't know what, who stole his body, what's going on, this is not good, to, oh my goodness, Oh my goodness, he's raised. It, it's a positive. It's, it's much more, I don't fully get this, but oh my goodness, this is amazing. And it seems right. Now everyone's starting to find faith in the moment. You know, the, the perplexed, no one's got faith. The amazed, oh my goodness, I don't fully get it, but God's doing something. And then you've got scoff. Others, however, scoffed. The word is, I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. Um, and, and it literally, in the Greek, it speaks of this. It means to deride, jeer, ridicule, or rubbish. In other words, this is absolute rubbish. This is, I'm, this is pathetic. This is, this, is, this is so not God. It's absolute rubbish. And so you'll have a group of people that say, this is not God. And they'll mock and ridicule and tear it down and make videos about how it's not God. If you watch one of those videos, you get all confused because... Careful of what you watch, please. Be careful of what you about anything today. Seriously, you will find an expert that will tell you exactly what you want to hear on any subject on the planet. Be careful. Be careful of what you watch. Problem is, there's too many experts now with too many opinions. So, and I hope in this in this I hope today to move anyone from those first two groups to the first group where we all end up when the Lord moves with a maze. And I'm not saying throw your brains away. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying go beyond Scripture. But in the Scripture, we have to see when God moves what that looks like. <laughs> because God has moved historically, like we've just read on the day of Pentecost. For hundreds of years, Israel had waited. When God moved, that was the response. And so there's a couple of things that happen whenever God moves. How am I doing? I'm doing all right. Um, and I'm going to just look at them, and then we're going we're gonna to end off with a really funny, 
we end up back with Ezekiel and just to see some of the crazy things that happened when God moved with him. But I want to do two things. We're going to look at the Bible, and I want to look at a bit of church history. And, uh, and look at when God has moved historically. Just to tell you a few stories of the history of God's moving through the last few hundred years, apart from what he did in the Bible itself. So in Ezekiel, we've read, he's by the Kabar River, and he, Ezekiel sees this vision. Heaven is opened, and he, he writes his book out of what he sees. But in Ezekiel 3, verse 23, Ezekiel, in the middle of this, the whole book is this prolonged and vision upon vision upon vision. And in this part of the vision, Ezekiel gets up and went, uh, and went out to the plain. So you've got to imagine, he, he gets up, he goes to the, this open piece of land, and he's standing in this plain, and the glory of the Lord was standing there. Please understand, this is a man in captivity, and suddenly the glory of the Lord is standing there. Now, what is that? What does that look like? What is that? But he knows, suddenly he's aware that God himself is here. Like the glory I'd seen by the Kabar River. So now he suddenly sees that God has broken into time and space, into the moment. Like it had happened at the start when he was first called to be a prophet. And this is what he does. And I fell face down to the ground. I fell to the ground. There is a response of just in the presence of God, he falls down. Now there are people that say, but he fell forward. If you fall, I've seen all this weird stuff. If you fall forward, it's God. If you fall backwards, it's the devil. Because, and you'll find videos on that. And you can fall forward, but but you know, if you fall backwards, it's the devil, and it's some other spirit. I'm like, no, I don't think that's true, even biblically. Because in John 18 verse 6, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, and they, and they were trying to find out, you know, who he is, and they came to him, and he, and they asked, "Are you him?" And and Jesus said, and he said this. Actually, he said, "I am." I am, and that's the name, the revelation of God. When they were coming to crucify him, he was actually, in this sense, revealing already that he was fully in charge. Are you Jesus? Because we're going to come and crucify you. And he says, I am. And the revelation, suddenly something happens that we don't fully get. But when those that are coming to arrest him saw what happened, they drew back and fell to the ground. The word fell is pipto in the Greek. It's the same word used for the young man sitting in a windowsill listening to Paul and finally falling asleep. And he fell out of that window to the ground. This is not a bowing down. This is a fall back, draw back, and fell to the ground at the revelation of Christ. When the Lord reveals himself in glory, you will not be standing going, kumbaya, my Lord. You will be... You might, be able to, you might be able to kneel, but there comes a point that the revelation of the glory of the Lord is so great that your limbs will shake. You will fall to the ground, and you won't care if it's forward or backwards. And nor will the Lord. It's like, where in the Bible does it say us? If the man falls backwards, it's the devil. But we come up with all these weird things and we divide the church over this. Jonathan Edwards, many of you should know him. He was one of the great reformers, well, revivalists of uh, the history of America, actually. It would be argued that America was quite heathen, actually, at its roots. I know there's a lot. Anyway, I won't go down that. But actually, there was a move of God soon after the nation was born. And it was a move called the Great Awakening. It, was, it, it awoke the church in America. Before this, the church was quite compromised. And there was this move of God that really spawned today. A lot of Americans think a Christian is a, America is a Christian nation. And let me just, you don't get such a thing. But it was such a move of God that they felt that the nation was now Christian, called the Great Awakening. And uh, this happened in the 1700s, and at one point, Jonathan Edwards, who was the revivalist who really broke this open, one of the key revivalists, and arguably, I think guys like John Piper would still say today, most of your reform guys would say, he was the greatest theologian in the history of the world. So he'd be, he'd be certainly regarded as the greatest theologian in the history of America, still today, and he lived in the 1700s. Most guys like John Piper will build everything that he says and does on Jonathan Edwards. This was a profound thinker and a profound preacher and teacher. And he said this. I'm going to quote him. Listen to, he writes about this revival in a place called Northampton. God moved as they were preaching. And then I'm just going to read his, from his diary. Many have had their religious affections raised far beyond what they had ever been before. This is old language, but you'll get what he's saying. And there were some instances of persons lying in a sort of trance. Remaining perhaps for a whole 24 hours motionless, 
and with their senses locked up. But in the meantime, under strong imaginations, again, he's using language of strong vision, strong, as though they went to heaven and had a vision of glorious and delightful objects. It was a very frequent thing to see outcries, convulsions, shaking, and such like, both with distress and also admiration and joy. It was not the manner here to hold meetings all night, nor was it common to continue them till very late in the night. But it, in this time, it was pretty often so. That there were some so affected and their bodies so overcome that they would not go home, but were obliged to stay all night where they were. We had a move of God in one of the churches I was in. And I'll never forget one of the stories. A friend of mine, Calvin, uh, he's still serving the Lord today. He was part of the worship team, and in the pre- he had this guitar that was worth more than his car. I mean, it was like his dream. I remember one of the meetings we were worshiping, and the presence of God fell, and people were falling and crying and rolling. It was just wild. It looked like, like, and Calvin was in the worship team, and at one point I remember seeing him playing his guitar, and then I looked at him again, and he was not playing his guitar, and it had slipped to his back, and he was standing there. He was like he was, he was gone. He was no longer with us. He was, but he wasn't. And then I remember at one point looking and watched him start to, and he fell over backwards onto his guitar. And he did not know, and he did not care. <laughs> Later that night, when the meeting was over, we tried to call it. It was about t- probably 11, 30, 12 at night. We, Please, guys, we have to go home. My wife was so drunk, we had to carry her to the car and carry her into the house. She couldn't walk, and she couldn't talk. Every time she looked at us, she would speak in tongues and start laughing hysterically. And Calvin, Calvin was the last one to leave the church. He was supposed to lock up. Every, he was... And so he locked the church. He had a motorbike. His wife and kids had gone home already. And he, he climbed on his motorbike to drive home. It's now probably half past 11 at night. And as he sat on his bike, the presence of God hits him again. And he fell, and his bike was standing, luckily still stand, standing in the car park. Calvin fell off his bike and lay with one leg on his bike and the rest of him lying on the ground. And at about 2.30 in the morning... One of our elders, the alarm at the church went off for some reason. One of our elders had to go back to the church. And at 2.30 in the morning, Calvin was still lying in the car park. (laughs) Everyone else is fast asleep, overwhelmed at the presence of God. (laughs) There's shaking that sometimes happens. Sometimes you're in the church and somebody next to you starts shaking. You're like, what is going on? And in Jeremiah 23 verse 9, listen to this. He speaks about this vision that he has. And he says, as he sees this vision, my heart is broken within me and all my bones tremble. Now, what does that look like? What does that feel like? I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and his holy words. Are you seeing a similarity to the day of Pentecost? And here we see he says, my bones are shaking. I'm so overwhelmed at God that I'm actually shaking. And there's stories in history of, I'll just read, this is such a great, there was, a, there was something called the Cane Ridge Revival in 1801. It was actually in the Presbyterian Church, couldn't you believe it? All these revivals, most of these churches were born in revival. So the Presbyterian Church, the move of God breaks out. And a reporter, Peter Cartwright, he is um, not a Christian. He's actually an unbeliever, but he's a reporter for a big newspaper. And he hears about this thing that's happening. So he goes as a reporter to take notes on what he's, you know, he's going to write about what this thing is. And I'm going to read from his notes. Because he writes about these, and I'll actually read just now, but of the jerks that see saints and sinners with convulsion jerking. But he says this. He says, I'm a, this is a report of an atheist free thinker who attended the Cambridge, Kentucky Revival in 1801, and he gives his name. He says, The noise was like the roar of Niagara. The vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. Some of the people were singing, others praying, some crying for mercy in the most piteous accents, while others were shouting vociferously. While witnessing these scenes, a peculiar strange sensation, such as I have never felt before, came over me. My heart beat tumultuously, my knees trembled. This is an unbeliever. My lips quivered, and I felt as though I must fall to the ground. A strange supernatural power seemed to pervade the entire mass of mind they collected. 
At one time, I saw at least 500 swept down in a moment as if a battery of a thousand guns had been opened upon them. And then immediately followed shrieks and shouts that rent the very heavens. I fled for the woods and wished that I'd stayed at home. <laughs> I fled for the woods and wished that I'd stayed at home. What is going on? It can be sure to see that he was in the perplexed side of that picture. <laughs> Drunkenness, we've read. Jeremiah, I'm like a drunken man. John Wesley, the father of the Methodist move. Methodist church. Listen to what he says. This is the founder of the Methodist church worldwide. People dropped on every side as thunderstruck as they fell to the ground. Others with convulsions, exceeding all description, and many reported seeing visions. Some shook like a cloth in the wind. Others roared and screamed or fell face down with involuntary laughter. This is the Methodist church. This is what birthed the Methodist church. <laughs> Powerful emotions. And again, going back to the Bible in Psalm 126 verse 1. Yeah, the psalmist writes, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, the, the psalmists are, are, are remembering what it was when their deliverance came, when finally God brought them back from captivity to Zion. And it says, we were like men who dreamed. It was like, how can, how can this happen? That we were in captivity in Babylon and the king has just let us go. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. Our mouths are filled with laughter. There'll be times in the presence of God that you will see the cross or you'll see the goodness of God or you'll see the deliverance of God. And your mouth will be filled with laughter, with a joy that bubbles up inside. And so when the Lord moves, and I've, been in, I've had this where I've been in a meeting and I have seen, you know, you, you can know about the cross and you can know about the goodness of God and that he's a good, kind God. And then you can see it. And when you see it, when you see it, you're not sitting there going, how great thou art. You are overwhelmed. You are overwhelmed. I, I mean, here's another one, powerful emotions. I love John 17, 13. Jesus said, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of joy within them. What is it? Was this a measure of joy? He has a little bit of joy for you. Who's felt joy before? You see, you felt a measure of joy. But what does a full measure of joy feel like? How are you going to respond when you feel a full measure of joy? Oh, how's this one? In Revelation 5 verse 4, John, the apostle, is on the island of Patmos. He's in prison. And, out of, and here's a funny thing. A lot of these powerful moves are born out of a time of great desert and drought. John's in prison on his own. It's, it's the Lord's Day. It's Sunday. So he knows he can't meet with the church because he's in prison. The church is meeting somewhere but on the island of Patmos, on the Lord's Day, Sunday, John has a vision. And this is what he sees. I wept and I wept as part of this vision because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. John goes into heaven and he sees heaven looking for a worthy person on the earth and there's no one. And when John sees the depravity of humankind, when he sees us as we really are, and then he sees Jesus, the perfect one who came and he was worthy to open God's scroll. He's so overwhelmed that he weeps and weeps. And so you've got to imagine this. You're in meeting, I want you to imagine this. And somebody has a John-type revelation. They suddenly see something that you're not seeing. You're just standing there singing a song. And the person next to you suddenly sees. And they start weeping and weeping and weeping. And you're wondering, what on earth it's going on. You'll be amazed. And if people are laughing and weeping and crying because God is revealing himself. <laughs> All right. I could give you a history of so many times. Charles Finney, 1825. He had saw 500,000 converts to Christ in his lifetime. 500,000 people he led to the Lord. Said this, it, is a very, it was very wonderful to see how a person's affections were sometimes moved when God did as if it were suddenly open their eyes and let into their minds a sense of greatness of His grace. 
the fullness of Christ and his readiness to save. Their joyful surprise has caused their hearts, as it were, to leap, so that they had they been they had so that they have been ready to break forth into laughter, tears often at the same time issuing like a flood, and intermingling with a loud weeping. Sometimes they have not been able to forbear crying out with a loud voice, expressing their great admiration, the manner of God's work on the soul, sometimes, especially is very mysterious. People see visions. John sees a vision. Ezekiel sees a vision. Jeremiah sees visions. And so people can be standing next to you, and suddenly heaven opens, and they see something. that All of them had this experience in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 12 speaks of visions and revelations in verse 4 of inexpressible things. Paul had this vision of inexpressible. I can't even tell you what I saw. I can't find words to explain what I experienced. I remember um, we had this move that it started and it, it carried on in our home. And I think the elders eventually made me an elder because there were like 40 to 50 people sometimes meeting at my house for no reason. I wasn't, we weren't officially a home group, but people just would come to our house. I'll never forget one of the stories. There was a, a man, called, a guy called Neil. He had um, been running from the police. He was actually a Rastafarian, like Wayne, where used to be, that was uh, running from the police. He'd been caught with drugs dealing, and then, because that's how he made a living, and then uh, a suspended sentence, he was caught again, which means he was going to go to jail for five years. So he was running to the Transcar to get away, and he visited his aunt who was in our church on the way up as a last probably food stop. And uh, this guy had lived in a car on Table Mountain for a number of years. Uh, I used to bath in the streams, and he didn't use soap, obviously, because he was very stinky and long. His beard was so long that he would hide the marijuana envelopes in the beard and get to roadblocks that way. I mean, he just looked long dreadlocks, stank, and uh, he came to our church, and afterwards we invited him to our home. And... We were at our house, and we were making food, and I said grace. And in the middle of saying grace, the presence of God broke in. Now, there's about probably 20 of us that have just gathered to get in my house off the church for a meal. And he's unsaved, and he's standing there, and Lord, you know, thank you. And somewhere in grace, the presence broke in. People, I remember Julie Delisle fell, Milani was rolling, MC was, it was just pandemonium broke out. Often the food would just get left on the table. No one could eat it because we were in the presence of God. And as the presence of God hit, this unbeliever was standing there. He had a necklace around his neck. Uh, it was a wooden, uh, sorry, it was a leather thing with a, a, a medallion on it of Hali Selassie, who's the, basically the Rastafarians believe that the king of Ethiopia, Hali Selassie, is the Messiah, not Jesus. And he had Hali Selassie on this medallion, this picture of his Messiah. And as the power of God hit us, this medallion somehow, without the clasp breaking, without the, 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 the necklace breaking, fell somehow to the ground. And I remember him reeling back in horror at firstly what he was seeing, not understanding it. And then seeing Hali Selassie had fallen from his neck. And he, he, I remember him shouted out, unbeliever, what is the meaning of this? What is the meaning of this? And then I said, Neil, what, what happened? And he said, he said this, I love, I'll never forget his words, he said this. Hali Selassie fell. <laughs> and we led him to the Lord because he knew, and I knew, somehow his Messiah had fallen in the presence of the true God. There was no explanation for it physically. It made no sense. But that Messiah had fallen, just like in the temple of Dagon. When the Dagon had fallen before the ark, so Hali Selassie had fallen at the power and the presence of God. When God moves like that, for whatever reason it happens, it's amazing. And what I thought I'd finish this with is I want to take you through just some things that happened to Ezekiel. And I can do this in probably a few minutes and then we're done. And I want, to, I, want to just, I want us to picture this. I want you to imagine that Ezekiel, remember he's by the Kabbalah River, it all starts, and then he hangs out with, with, with the equivalent, the, the people of God. He hangs out with the people of God. And, 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 and each time... Something, he's seeing something. He is in a personal revival. The river of God is broken out in him. And so in Ezekiel 1 verse 28, we'll just run, quickly look at it. So he sees this appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. 
So was the radiance around me. Sees God. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell face down. And I heard the voice of one speaking. I want you to imagine. So you're in worship. We're singing hallelujah, God. And suddenly heaven's open to somebody. And they see God. They see the glory of God. They see the colors. They see the, the, and, and at that moment, right next to you, they fall face down. You might not see what they see. But they're seeing something. All right, then. 2, verse 1 to 2. He said to me, Son of man, Stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. So now he's fallen down, and the next minute he's being pulled up. But it's being pulled up. It's the Spirit of God. is ra- I don't even know what that looks like. But he's being raised up to his feet. And as he's not, now when he's standing next to you, he's not there. You've got to understand He's not aware of you. He is conscious of the presence of God. In 3 to 9, and he said to me, Son of man, stand up. Uh, that's just right. I'm just going to miss you. Uh, yeah, verse 9. Then he looked at me. That's right. Then he looked at me, and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. So now this oak is looking at something, and he's, you're standing next to him. You're not seeing the scroll. He's seeing the scroll. Then, in 3 verse 9, put it up. I think you had it there. I think it was right. Sorry, this is, this, he's doing really well. Eh? These are fast-moving notes, so thank you. And so God says to him, you see the scroll, open your mouth and eat it. Now, I want you to imagine this. He's fallen down, he's got up, someone got up, and now he's standing there looking at something. And the next minute, 3 verse 9. He said, eat what, eat what is before you. Eat the scroll. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth. Now imagine this. And he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat the scroll I'm giving and fill your stomach with it. So I ate and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. A little bit later, actually then it gets to his stomach and it becomes... Bitter and angry stomach. So it's like, mm, mm, oh, oh. 3 verse 14 to 15. The spirit lifted me up and took me away. So he just, in the middle of the meeting, just walks out. I went in bitterness and in the anger of my spirit. So now he's like, bitter and angry. Like, what is going on? Are you amazed? Imagine. Would you be amazed and perplexed by this? With the strong hand of the Lord upon me, I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Abib near the Kabar River, and there where they were living, I sat among them for seven days overwhelmed. <laughs> so he gets to them, and they're obviously there, and he sits down, and he's overwhelmed. He can't do anything. In verse 3, 22 and 24, the hand of the Lord is upon me there, and he said to me, get up. Again, he gets up and goes out to the plain, and there I will speak to you. So I got up and went out to the plain, and the glory of the Lord was standing there, like the glory I'd seen by the Kabbalah River, and I fell face down. Again, he's on his face. Then the Spirit of God came into me and raised me to my feet again. He spoke to me and said, go shut yourself inside your house. Why? (laughs) Go shut yourself inside your house. In verse 26, and this is, gets funny. I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you'll be silent and unable to rebuke Israel, though they are a rebellious house. Now, his tongue is stuck in his mouth. How's it going today? Mm-hmm. Mm. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. I can't speak. I mean, he can't speak. He can't explain. God's using him as a picture of the fact that God has spoken so many times to his people and they haven't listened. That now he's actually not going to even allow his prophets to speak. But to Ezekiel, it's just... Most of you want to drive demons out of him at this point, don't you? Then he says in verse 4, verse 4 to 6. This is in our Bibles. Lie on your left side. 
<laughs> so that's the meeting. He's lying on his left side. And put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of Israel. <laughs> so guess what that means? After you finish this, so it's 390 days he's going to lie on one side. Then after this, turn to your right side and bear the sin of the house of Judah. I've assigned you 40 days a day for each year. So this guy, are you getting that this is amazed and perplexed? This is one of the prophets of the Bible. This is in our Bible. Then in verse 8, verse 3, I love this. He stretched out what looked like a hand. Now he sees his hand. And took me by the hair of my head. Okay? The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven. And in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem. So what did that look like? What did that feel like? He took me by the hair of my head. In a vision. But now it's... In 11 verse 13, we're nearly done. Now, as I was prophesying, this is wild. He's prophesying, and while he prophesies, one of the saints there dies. Then I fell face down and cried out in a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel? You've got to imagine this. He's, he's in this vision. He gets to a bunch of the Jews, and somebody dies. And now he's crying out, are you going to kill us all, God? In verse 12, 17, my last one. Son of man, tremble as you eat your food and shudder in fear as you drink your water. Now at this point, somebody's quoting, but God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. Do you get this? We've got to be very careful of our Bible cliches. There's a spirit of fear that is good and there's a spirit of fear that is bad. This is a good fear. It's a good fear. It's an overwhelming fear at the bigness and the greatness of his God. Why did I read those things to you? Because I want you to see with me that in the Bible, the God that's the same yesterday, today, and forever, does things sometimes that will cause us to be amazed and perplexed. I'll finish with a quote by Jonathan Edwards again. The man who started the Great Awakening in America. He says this, and this is regarded as one of the greatest preachers in the history of America. Many would say the greatest preacher. Listen to what he says. Preaching has no effect because it causes no effect. The greatest preacher in the history of America. Preaching has no effect because it causes no effect. I am bold to assert that there was never any considerable change wrought in the mind or conversion of any person by anything of a religious nature that ever he read, heard, or saw who had not had his affections moved. In other words, the Bible is only going to move you if it moves your heart. Preaching is only going to move you if it moves your emotion. Until you are moved internally, those things have got no power. To come, in, you know, to come to a church every Sunday and to not be moved means you're not changing. Then he says, when the spirit of power stirs our spiritual affections, such unutterable and glorious joys may be too great and mighty for the weak dust and ashes of our bodies. The discovery of God's glory, when given in a great degree, have a tendency by affecting the mind to overwhelm the body. If you're being moved with God, at some point it will probably manifest in tears, in laughter, in wonder, in while we're worshiping, suddenly the congregation I love this morning, this wasn't worship that was driven by the front. This was a people who are starting to tap into and see the wonder of the king. And worship starts to spring from inside of us. Who felt emotion over this weekend as we looked at some aspect of God? Who had their heart moved? And remember that there's measures given. If the Lord increases the measure, the more the measure increases, the deeper the river gets, 
the harder it is to stay as you were. We rejoice in every measure that he gives because even just sometimes as you hear the word, as you read the scripture, something moves in you by the spirit and you are changed. But when the river rises, we have to do some explanation. This is that. And so I don't want to presume about what God wants to do. I just have a sense, fasten your, well, don't fasten your seatbelts. Unbuckle your seatbelts. Unbuckle your seatbelts. I thought the Lord speak to me this, um, and I'll just share openly as I land this. Um, I've been in moves of God, and you know, whenever there's a move of God, there's human flesh and there's froth and there's, and sometimes I've seen people that I think, ah, oh, I don't know if that's so much God, you know, and I've kind of, you, you kind of judge, you're kind of like, yeah. And the Lord said to me this, he said to me, Andrew, your spirit, my spirit, because I lead this, can become a cage for the people of God. Because I have authority here. I can stop God. Remember, Jesus said he knocks. And we must hear what he says. And we must open the door. I can close the door. I have that power. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's in the book of Revelation. I'm knocking. If you hear and open the door, if I get up with the elders and say, this is that or not, that's where the church goes. And I felt the Lord say to me, be very careful, Andrew, that you do not misinterpret what I might want to do. And close the door on my spirit. And so I just want to confess to you that I want to be open to whatever God wants to do, however he wants to do it. And I don't know what that looks like. And I don't want us to think it looked look like that. It might, it might not. I just have a sense that this is a time of God doing something. And so I wonder if we would just maybe stand with me.